Now, when you come over into chapter 22, these religious rulers have already determined that he's to die. They sought to lay hands on him, but they are afraid of the multitude at this time. Now, the Lord actually moves right on in this next chapter and will continue this verbal clash that he has with the religious rulers. Chapter 22 is the end of that verbal clash. And you have here the parable of the king who made a marriage feast, and that's a continuation of the Lord Jesus' answer to the chief priests and elders that was begun in the last chapter. Now, let's note that. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, this is verse 1 of Matthew 22, "...the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son." I think this is one of the greatest parables that he gave for this day in which we live. "...and he sent forth his servants to call them, and were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I've prepared my dinner, my ox and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage." But they made light of it. The Lord Jesus begins this by saying, You see, and again the kingdom of heaven is like unto this. And he spoke unto them again by parables. And we find now that he resorts back to the expression kingdom of heaven, which he didn't use, if you notice, in the last two parables. But this parable parallels the parables in Matthew 13. And the emphasis here is upon how and why this age began, not upon the conclusion of the age. You find that in Matthew 13. Now, will you notice, he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the feasts. And who are those that were bidden? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. He'd sent his apostles to them. And the prophets had been the messengers back in the Old Testament. And again, he sent forth servants. And that's verse 4. But what did they do? Verse 5, But they made light of it, went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. Now, notice what he's saying here. This is a direct reference to the rejection of the Lord Jesus. Now, verse 7, "...but when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murders, and burned up their city." Now, he'll go back to that in chapters 24. We find out about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. by Titus the Roman when he came. And I think this is a direct reference to that. Verse 8, "...then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy." In other words, now the invitation is going out. This is a definite change in the method and manner of the message, and it refers to this present age where we are today. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. You see, the invitation's gone out today. And notice, though, what happened. When the king came in to see the guests, 
He saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. Now, what is that wedding garment? The invitation is for everyone. But you see, there's a danger of coming without meeting the demands of the king. And that wedding garment is the righteousness of Christ, which is absolutely essential for salvation, and it's supplied to all who believe. Listen to Paul in Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God without the law, that is apart from the law, is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness from God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all, and it comes down upon all that believe, for there's no difference. You'll have to have the wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a garment, a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And I hear some of these people, they say they're going to take their chance before God, and they're going to talk to him when they get there. This fellow was speechless without that wedding garment, friends. Verse 13, Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. You have to have the wedding garment. That's up to you. The call has gone out to everyone but you'll have to come on his terms. Now the enemy makes the final onslaught, the final attack upon Lord Jesus. You have the Herodians coming first. You have the Sadducees coming next. And finally, the Pharisees come. And then the Lord questions these Pharisees, and they try to get away from him as quickly as he can. That marks the break. And then in chapter 23, we hear him denounce them. Now, the Herodians came with their particular problem, and it had to do with paying tribute to Caesar. The Sadducees had a question about the resurrection, and the Pharisees came concerning the great commandment of the law. Now, we're going to see the marvelous way in which our Lord answered these men. May I say, I consider this one of the proofs of his deity is the way he dealt with the enemy. It's one of the most marvelous things that you can possibly see about our wonderful Lord. Now, here at verse 15 is where we begin today. And first, it's the Herodians who come to him with a question that actually related to their particular position. You see, they were a political party which favored the house of Herod. They looked to those of that house to deliver them from the Roman yoke. And they were strictly political. I do not think could be even considered a religious party at all. And the Pharisees apparently used them or prompted them. It's quite possible that many of the Pharisees were also Herodians, since it was a political party. Now I'm reading verse 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Now, the Pharisees instigated this attack upon him. But notice what they did. Verse 16, they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of man. Tell us therefore... What thinkest thou, is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Now, obviously, 
they were not really interested in that. They had their own answer, let's say. It was a trick question. You see, if he said, no, you're not to pay tribute to Caesar, then he's a traitor to Rome, and Rome was ruling over them. If he said, yes, then he is not their true Messiah, because the Messiah would not say that. Believe me, they've got him on the horns of a dilemma, haven't they? Well, they think they have at least. Now, shall we pay tribute under Caesar or not? Now, will you notice what he did? And Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? You notice what he called them. He called them what they were, hypocrites. Now, verse 19, Show me the tribute money, and they brought unto him a penny. I think this is very notable. He used their coin. I've often wondered why he didn't use his own. I think it's because he didn't have one. He asked them, says, show me a coin. Let me have a coin. And he saith unto them, whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. And now they were using the legal tender, the Roman government, and here it was a Roman coin. Then saith he unto them, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. This is an amazing answer, because there's more here than just answering them. And he certainly did that, that they owed something to Caesar. They did owe him something. They were using his coin, for instance. They walked down Roman roads, and Rome did give them a measure of peace. So they did owe something to Rome, and therefore rendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But there's another department under God, the things that are God's. Now, when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Now, this very frankly reveals that he did not fall into their trap, and they did owe Caesar something. But that did not remove their responsibility to God at all. Now, they left him. They went their way. It's time now for the Sadducees to come to bat, and they make an attempt to trap him. Verse 23 now, and I'm reading. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and ask him, saying, Master, Moses said, If a man die, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife, raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren. The first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also, the third, and all the way down, by the way, to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they've all had her. Now, you see, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. It's a ridiculous illustration. Imagine this woman had seven brothers for her husbands. She must have been in Hollywood to have done this. But the question is, whose wife shall she be? Now, there are two things our Lord said in which the Sadducees erred. Listen to him, verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. 
Now, the Sadducees were ignorant in two spheres. They, first of all, did not know the Scriptures, and they had no knowledge of the power of God. In other words, ignorance of the Scriptures and ignorance of the power of God caused them to bring up such a ridiculous illustration as that. Now, the explanation is simple, and the problem is solved. And it's just this simple, verse 30. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Now, they're not angels. We'll not be angels in heaven. But we'll be like them in the sense that they do not marry a given in marriage. In other words, there will not be any necessity to continue the race by birth, no multiplication of the race by that method in heaven. That does not mean that a husband and wife who are very close down here can't be together in heaven. If they want to be, of course they could be. But, my friend, think of the ones that wouldn't want to be together, and they certainly won't have to be together. But after all, they both will have a new body, be new individuals, and probably they'll get along lots better up there than they did down here. But the important thing is no such thing as the marriage relationship for the purpose of propagating the race. That is the point that he's answering. Now, he says this to them, verse 31, "...but is touching the resurrection of the dead. Have ye not read that which was spoken unto you?" By God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And that is devastating, that statement. Abraham, what about Abraham today? Well, Abraham is as much Abraham today as he ever was. How about Isaac and Jacob? They've just been transferred to another place. They're living. And that's true of your loved one that's in Christ, waiting over there for you. This is a great statement. When the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. The Sadducees now have been silenced. The Herodians have been silenced. The Pharisees, they represented actually the very best in Israel. They were a religio-political party, and they hoped to restore the kingdom. And in that, they could join with the Herodians They'd like to have seen the kingdom of David brought back into power and get rid of Rome. But as a religious party, they oppose the Sadducees. I would suppose they would correspond to the conservative wing today of the church and that the Sadducees would correspond to the liberal wing of the church. Now, let me read verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. In other words, they have a huddle now, and they've got to plan a strategy in order to come to him. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, and that would mean a scribe, he knew the Mosaic law, and that is the sense in which this is used here, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, now they put this man forth as being their clever lawyer in order that he might propound a question. Verse 36, Master which is the great commandment in the law. Now, listen to the Lord. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. 
This is the first and great commandment. And he did not pick any one of the Ten Commandments. Now will you notice, and he gives them a second one. The second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now when you put this down on your life, you recognize that you are coming short of the glory of God. And our Lord now is very straightforward with the man. Here are the two great commandments. You want to know what is the greatest? Well, this is the greatest and this is the next one. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now the Pharisees are a little puzzled, and so they huddle again. Verse 41, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. Now, you see, his answer was so definite and straightforward, and it's so obviously accurate, and they had to be honest. If they were honest, they'd have to say, well, we've fallen short. We can't be saved that way. We do need a Savior. And he was right then, almost in the shadow of the cross. Now, will you notice, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. Now, they had a little huddle. They were going to come at him again. But he beats them now to the punch. And now he asked them something. And this is what he asked. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They'd questioned his birth, you see. Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit, or in the spirit, call him Lord? And David did that in Psalm 110, verse 1. How did David do that? How could David call his son his Lord? That just wasn't the way it was done. They would have to say that he would have to be supernaturally born for David to call him Lord. And he quotes now, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. That's Psalm 110.1. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? That's the question that our Lord put them. And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Now, you see, there are several things that are quite interesting here. David wrote Psalm 110. The liberal says he didn't. David wrote Psalm 110 by the Holy Spirit. The liberal says not. And David wrote Psalm 110 about the Messiah. The liberal says he didn't. But you see, our Lord made that very clear. Now, this gives the explanation and the only explanation is the virgin birth of Jesus. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? He couldn't be his son by natural birth. It had to be by a supernatural birth. And they'd have to admit that. And you see, they were questioning his, by the way. They were saying, for instance, we're sons of Abraham. We're not illegitimate at all. Now, this ended the verbal clash with the religious rulers. And we're told that no man, no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. They made no concerted attack upon him verbally after this. They have determined his death now. And that's the thing they're going to move to. They see they cannot answer him. This is, to me, one of the great proofs of his deity. 
Now we come to chapter 23, and here the Lord Jesus warns the multitude against the scribes and Pharisees, and he pronounces woes upon the scribes and Pharisees and weeps over Jerusalem. Now this chapter concludes the clash with the religious rulers by the Lord Jesus, warning the multitude about them, and then denouncing the religious rulers in no unmistakable terms. It is scathing, it is scalding, it's scorching what he says to them. It's filled with invective, denunciation, and merciless condemnation. It's very difficult for me to see how the liberal articulates this chapter with his conception of a gentle Jesus who never judged in saying anything harsh while he was here. You read this chapter carefully and slowly, and it'll blanch your own soul. It's more difficult, I think, to outline this chapter than most of the others here. But you have the warning of Jesus against the scribes and Pharisees, and then the woes of Jesus against the scribes and Pharisees, and then the weeping of Jesus over Jerusalem. Now, listen to him as he begins here. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They're usurping that which was really they had no right to. They occupied the same position the church leaders occupy today. People looked up to him for the interpretation of the truth. Now, listen to him. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. Now, they interpret the Scripture. And you can't break the Scripture because they're breaking it. You do what the Scripture says, but you don't follow their works because they are not following the Word of God. Now, here's a sad commentary upon religious rulers. Listen to him. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of man. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greeting in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. They like to have titles. They like to be recognized. They wear certain religious garments and habits that sets them apart from other people. Our Lord is condemning that. Now he says here, but be ye not called rabbi, that is, or teacher. For one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. That is something we need to keep in mind. I think that there's certain respect. Honor belongs to the pastor of a church. But my friend, he's no different than anyone else. He's just one of your brothers. And call no man your father, that is, the life giver. That's what a father is upon the earth. For one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called master. That is, you don't have any authority. The only authority is the word of God. Neither be ye called master. For one is your master, even Christ. This is terrific, by the way. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Now, if you want to be the greatest, then become the servant of all. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Now we 
are in a section where it's filled with many woes. It's woe, 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 and many of them are here. These woes are denunciations of our Lord upon the religious rulers of that day. It's the harshest language that you'll find in the Word of God. No prophet of the Old Testament ever denounced sin as it's being denounced here by the Lord Jesus. And I wish today that I could get this chapter into the hands of the liberals. I'm of the opinion many of them have never read it. I understand one here in Southern California, when it was called to his attention, didn't even know it was in the Bible. Of course, he'd never read the Bible, and he did not even know this was in the Bible. There is a misunderstanding today of who the Lord Jesus really is. Liberalism has given the impression that he's the love child and that all he ever talked about was love. That's not true, of course. In fact, up at Berkeley, one of the banners that was carried around in the days of the protest up there was, Jesus, yes, church, no. And a senator from up in Oregon has made a great deal of that because he says the church today is giving the wrong impression and that they want Jesus, but they don't want the church as it is. Well, I disagree with that entirely. My point is, yes, they've misunderstood the church, and the church is giving a wrong impression. I agree with all of that. But, my friend, the main problem is they've really misunderstood who Jesus is. He's not the love child that the hippie thinks that he is and that the liberal thinks that he is. He uses the harshest language. He loved sinners and he died for sinners. But my friend is the judge. He's also going to judge sinners. And we need to have a correct perspective of who he is. And therefore, he's misunderstood today. The average conception of the Lord Jesus is not even biblical. And the Jesus of the liberal never did live. He never had an existence. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean simply this, because I ask a liberal preacher this. Does the Jesus that you believe in, was he virgin born? He said, no. Did he perform miracles? No. Did he die on the cross for the sins of the world? No. Did he rise bodily from the grave? No. Well, I'd like to know where that Jesus ever originated then. There's no documents that tell about him living in the first century. The only documents that we have tell of one virgin born, a miracle performer, who died for the sins of the world, who rose from the dead, and who ascended into heaven, and who's coming as the judge of this earth. My friend, that Jesus is not known today, and he's the only one that's ever lived. This other one is a figment of the imaginations. Will you listen to him here now? I know this is strong language. This is strong tea, and not everyone can receive it. Now he pronounced these woes here, and believe me, they're terrific. Listen to this. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Listen to him. For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. In other words, a hypocrite can block the way to heaven more than anything else. And that is the thing he's saying. He uses the term woe here eight times and hypocrite seven times. 
Again, verse 14, "'Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites!' Listen to this. "'Ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer, therefore ye shall receive the greater condemnation.'" In other words, their business dealings were crooked and heartless, but they made long prayers. Verse 15, "'Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he's made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourself.'" Oh, they were great going out witnessing. They could go down to the mission and speak, and they would go around everywhere and give a witness. But I tell you, they were not getting anyone to Christ. No one really was born again. "'Woe unto you, ye blind guides!' which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it's nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he's a debtor. They're hair splitters, you see. Verse 17, Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gold of the temple that sanctifieth the gold. And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it's nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he's guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it, and by all things thereon. And whosoever shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it, and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God, and by him that sitteth thereon. You see, they were tempting to split hairs, and that is something that is dangerous in Christian work. Today, My, I tell you, you won't find anything more harsh than this. And I think we've had just about all we can take of this today. Verse 23, I'm reading now of Matthew 23. "'Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Now, they would tithe these plants that produce condiments like mint and anise and cumin. For instance, when I was a boy, my mother always kept out in the backyard somewhere a little patch of mint to put in iced tea in summertime. And it wasn't much, just a little patch. And can you imagine one of these religious rulers measuring off a little patch of mint, and taking a tenth of it to give to the Lord. Oh, they were strict about those little matters. But our Lord says, you forgot the weightier matters of the law. And those weightier matters would have brought them to the person of Christ, but they forgot them. Then verse 24, "...ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel." Do you think that's humorous? I do. If I'd been there that day, I'd laughed at this one. That is, if I wasn't a Pharisee or a scribe, and if I'd been there, I sure hope I wouldn't have been one of those. May I say to you, I think this is very funny. But, of course, it's said in a very serious vein here, but I'm sure many in the crowd laughed, especially who knew those old religious rulers. And we've got a lot of folk that make so much of the little things today. They strain at a gnat. They swallow a camel. I know a dear lady, and thank the Lord, she's now gone to be with the Lord. Oh, she used to argue about lipstick. And you know that she had the meanest tongue of any person 
I think I've ever met. Now, she didn't think that was bad, but lipstick was terrible. And frankly, I think that to have the paint of gossip on the end of your tongue is lots worse, and especially use that paint to blacken somebody's character or reputation. I think that's a lots worse than just put a little paint on your lips. Some of them be better without it, of course. But I think all of us ought to look as well as we can. Some of us don't have much to work with. But we ought to do the best we can with what we've got. It's amazing how people can strain gnats and swallow camels even to this good day. I don't know about you, but to me that's very humorous. Verse 25, "'Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they're full of extortion and excess.'" And I would say that this is a picture of the average church today. They're busy making the outside of the cup and platter clean. My, they go through ceremonies, and they want to have the best equipment, and they talk so nice and pious on the outside. But inside, they don't deal with sin. In fact, they don't like that word. It's a dirty word. And it is dirty, by the way, but that has to be cleaned up. Now listen to him in verse 26, "'Thou blind Pharisee!' Cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Now, don't misunderstand. The Lord is saying the outside of the platter ought to be clean too. But you give a wrong impression when the inside is dirty and the outside is not. And the place to start is on the inside. Verse 27, "'Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites!' My, he really leveled the gun at this crowd. For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Now, this to me is the most frightening figure of speech that he ever used. And I would say the picture of the platter and the cup, cup and saucer, clean on the outside, dirty on the end, is a picture of the average church. But I'm afraid this is a picture of the average Christian today, so-called. Don't think he's a Christian. A uh, great many people outside, they have beautiful marble, and it really looks nice. But inside, dead men's bones. They're dead in trespasses and sins. They have a form of godliness, but deny the power of it to take a sinner forgive his sins, regenerate him, make him a new creation in Christ Jesus. And friends, until that's happened to you, your church membership is null and void, and it's nothing in the world but hypocrisy. Now listen to the Lord Jesus in verse 28. "...even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto man." but within you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Oh, my friend, he's denouncing the religious leaders, and that should be denounced. I think above everything else is the fact that the church has gone astray today. And my friend, if you've got a Bible-teaching church in your community and a Bible-teaching preacher, man who believes the book and is trying to preach it, for God's sake, Stand with him in these days. He needs you, and you need him, and we today need 
men to stand for the Word of God. Verse 29, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous. It's amazing today how a preacher or a great evangelist or that sort of thing in his day was absolutely ridiculed, denounced. And that was true of all of them of the past. Spurgeon was denounced in his day. And look at the preachers who quote him today. And Dwight L. Moody was, and R.A. Torrey was. My friends, may I say to you, our Lord sure did know human nature, and it hasn't changed. He said, you build tombs to the prophets. After they're gone, you'll build them a tomb, and you garnish the sepulchres of the righteous. And say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves, that ye are the children of them that kill the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. They're doing the same thing today they did in that day. Now, here he comes, and this is something that'll blanch your soul. This is something that's devastating to that damnable doctrine of the universal brotherhood of man and the universal fatherhood of God. Listen to him now, verse 33. And those of you that just think he was the gentle Jesus and never said anything that would even hurt anything, why, some of them think he'd never even swat a fly or crush a grape. But apparently he did. Listen now, verse 33. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Do you know any language stronger than that? There's not a sailor along the waterfront today that can say anything stronger than that. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, what does that mean? Why, you're an offspring of vipers. And now don't give me that saccharine sweetness about the universal fatherhood of God. God doesn't claim you, my friend, if you've rejected Jesus Christ. The only way to become a son of God to as many as received him, that is the Lord Jesus, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God even to those that don't do any more nor less than believe on his name. Now, that's harsh. And don't blame me for it, because I'm nice and sweet. I would never say anything harsh like this. But he did. He did, my friends. I'm just saying what he said here. You can't have it much stronger than this. I'm afraid this is a cup of tea that's a little too strong for a great many of the liberal-minded folk today and the hippie-type thinking of this present hour. He was no love child. He came to die for your sins because he loved you. But if you reject him, he becomes your judge. Verse 34, Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon all the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. 
Apparently that was the incident in that day. And he begins right at the beginning and brings them down to the present hour that these are to be judged, my friend. He's not making any distinction here. That is made today. Well, we know that everybody will ultimately be saved. He says not. He makes it very clear they will not be. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. And he's looking forward now to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And what does he do now? The one who made this strong denunciation now will weep over Jerusalem. Listen to him now. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto you, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, Ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now, Jerusalem has rejected him in the triumphal entry. Now, he rejects Jerusalem, but now he weeps over this city. You see, he denounced, yes, but he did love them. And the judgment now must come, and he weeps. Someone made the statement in Dwight L. Moody's day that he was the only man that ever lived that they thought could preach on hell. Harsh-minded are a person with a very strong personality maybe ought not to preach on hell unless you're moved by it. Not at all. You remember, they thought he was Jeremiah because he could weep. Jeremiah gave the strongest message in the Old Testament, but he wept over it. And I'm of the opinion that we ought to be very careful today about our denunciation unless we are moved emotionally by it. And if we're not, maybe it'd be better not to say anything at all. Now, that brings us to the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. And we're going to give some time to this Olivet Discourse. You see, not only were these religious rulers in shock, but his apostles were also at this. And this seemed to be a strange turn of events for them. They thought he would establish the kingdom and that Jerusalem would become the capital. But now their house is to be left under them desolate, and they'll not see him until they do say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They rejected him. Now he is going to the cross. Now what's going to happen in the meantime? Well, these apostles have some questions, and they're really shocked at what he said. Now I'm reading chapter 24, and we begin the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Why, he said to the crowd there that day that the place would be desolate. This house would be desolate. It was Herod's temple. It had already been 40 years in building, and it was destroyed in 70 A.D. before it was finished. And now he says it's to be destroyed or left desolate. And the disciples come and said, you take a look here at these buildings. It's not desolate now. And Jesus said unto them, see ye not all these things. They thought they saw it, and they asked him to take a look. 
And he says, do you really see it? And by the way, friends, do you see your hometown or where you live today as God sees it? When we first came to Southern California, we spent every Monday my day off riding around looking at this fantastic place. It was fantastic in those days before everybody in the world tried to get out here. And it was a beautiful place. And I'd say to my wife, though, I'd say, you know, all of this is under judgment. We really don't see it as it is. The judgment is coming upon all of this. And God will judge this area. Do you really see all of this that's around us today, friends? is passing away. All these cultural centers, these great schools, these great institutions, these skyscrapers, these great cities, they're all going to pass away. Do you see all these things? Now listen to him. Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. It's all coming down, every bit of it. Now, if you think the first statement put them in shock, they write now, my friend, in trauma. And they're really in a bad way now. Notice, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Now they come to him. They've talked it over, I'm sure. They come to him with three questions, and he's going to answer these three questions, friends. And the Olivet Discourse is another one of the discourses where the fanatics, all of these schisms today, all of these cults, they make a great deal of it. And when anyone wants to be sensational. Now, the Lord Jesus is not talking about everything under the sun here. And he's not talking about the church here. The church is not in the Olivet Discourse. He's answering three questions. Now, friends, he's going to answer them. Tell us, when shall these things be? That means, when will one stone not be left upon another? Now, Matthew does not have that part of the discourse at all. You will find that over in the Gospel of Luke, and you'll find segments of it in Mark. But actually, Luke carries that section. Why? Because Matthew is the Gospel of the Kingdom. The king is presented here, and that present destruction has something to do with this age in which we live, but has nothing to do with way off down yonder in the future, the king is coming. So Matthew doesn't carry that part. Now Luke says, when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, you will know that this time has come, for when one stone will not be left upon another. And many of those that heard him there that day were present in 70 A.D. when Titus surrounded the city, laid siege to it, and cut it off from the rest of the world. And when he finally breached the wall and got in, it was terrible what he did. And he destroyed that city. He demolished it as it had never been before. And you must recall that it had been destroyed several times before, especially by Nebuchadnezzar. And now it is destroyed, and that part has been fulfilled. In other words, one-third of the Olivet Discourse has been fulfilled. Now the next two questions, what shall be the sign of thy coming, and what is the sign of the end of the world, or the end of the age? The world never comes to an end. There's going to be a new earth brought on the scene. This one will make way for a new one, but it's just like... You trade in your old car for a new car. 
You're not without a car. You can't say, that's the end of the car age for me. I don't have a car anymore. Well, you do. You traded the old one in, got a new one. And we're going to trade the old world in, at least the Lord is, for a new one. And the world never comes to an end. It's the end of the age. And that's the way they're asking it, by the way. And he's going to answer it now in the chronological and logical order, which is the last question he'll answer first. What is the sign of the end of the age? And what is the sign of his coming? Now, this has to do with his coming to the earth to establish his kingdom. And the church is not in the picture here at all. The church actually is gone by the time you get to the end of the age here. It's the last days of the nation Israel. Now, we believe that he's talking about the great tribulation period. Somebody says, can you know that? Why, sure we know that, because he labels it the great tribulation period right in this discourse. I imagine that some folk thought that some fundamental preacher thought of that term, the great tribulation. Our Lord's the one who thought of it. He's the one that gave it its name. Now, you'll notice here, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Verse 4. Now, that word, take heed and let no man deceive you, is, I think, to characterize the entire age. And we're in the front end of it, of course. But it's a word of caution that's given and will be especially true in the Great Tribulation period because that's when the Antichrist is to appear. But we are told today elsewhere to beware of false teachers, not false prophets. Anybody starts prophesying today, you can poo-poo them right out of the scene as far as a Christian is concerned because prophets are not for this period, but we are to beware of false teachers. And there are a great many of those around. We must test it by Scripture. I read a letter, maybe some of you will recall it, from a lady that was in a cult and how the Lord delivered her out of that cult. Fact of the matter is, I have another letter here before me, and it just came in, and I'd like to share it with you because of the fact that it illustrates what I'm talking about. This comes from a woman who apparently has a very important position in an insurance company in downtown Los Angeles. Now, she says here, I'm reading now, about 20 years ago, a well-meaning friend introduced me to, and I can't mention it, it's a cult, and you mention it, you get in trouble on the radio, so I don't mention it, I don't want to get in trouble. A friend introduced her to this cult after going to her church for one year as her recruit, I switched on the radio during lunch. You were giving your noon Bible study. I listened and learned. And then she tells about how her entire family then went to a good church in the area in which she lived. Friends, may I say to you that you need to beware today of false teaching. There's a lot of it around, not only in Southern California, but all over this land today. And he says, "...take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I'm Christ, and shall deceive many." Now, they're to be false Christs. We have them. There are few around today. Not as many right now as there were a few years ago. We had a couple here in Southern California. 
One had a holy city up here in northern California, but whether it's northern or southern California, you don't have any holy cities, not in this state or any other state for that matter. But this man was a man that he expected any minute to be called to Washington to solve the problems of the world. Well, you don't send to the holy city in California to get the solution to the problems of the world. One's coming from the holy of holies in heaven someday, and he'll solve the problems. Now, in the end time, there is to be a false Christ. Now, I believe that our Lord, there upon the Mount of Olives, looked down to the end of the age, to this great tribulation period, and here at the beginning, he's bridging the gap. Now, I recognize that there are many good teachers today, much better than I am, that take the position that immediately he moves to the end of the age. Well, I think you find the fulfillment of it, the entire spectrum of the Scriptures fulfilled at the end. But I do think he's bridging the gap. Now, if you disagree with that, you'll be in mighty good company, I know. But, of course, if you want to be right, I'm sure you'll want to go along with me right here. Now, will you notice this? He says, "...many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ." and shall deceive many. That's the rider on the white horse at the end of the age when Antichrist comes. Ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Wars and rumors of wars are not signed that we're at the end of the age by any means. And I think he's bridging now the gap. It's so easy to think of major war is indicative that we're at the end of the age. Actually, it's not. There have been, I forget how many, wars, 200 and some odd major wars in the past five or 6,000 years. And I think we've had maybe 200 years of peace in that time. But wars and rumors of wars are not the sign. I remember when I was a boy, and I was just a little boy at the end of World War I, and I remember hearing my dad and others talking about the books that were coming out then, saying that this was the end of the world, as they put it in those days, because we had just had a World War I. Well, after that, we had a worldwide depression and a World War II and the atom bomb. And during World War II, remembering what had happened in World War I, I said to my congregation when I was pastor out here in Pasadena, I said to them, after World War II, you wait and see, there'll be a wheelbarrow load of books saying that we're at the end of the world, as they'll put it, because we've had World War II. But you know, I was wrong. There wasn't a wheelbarrow load of books. There were two wheelbarrow loads of books that came out at that time, and they all were very sensational. Well, we've come a long way since World War II, and so it might be well just to listen to the Lord again and quit listening to these false teachers. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And friends, man will never solve the problem of war. He thinks he's going to. The League of Nations was to do that, and then the United Nations. And I don't know what will be coming up in the future, but they'll have something, because nothing will work until the Prince of Peace comes. Can't have peace without him. Now, will you notice he says in verse 7, "...for nation shall rise against nation, 
and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes and diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, this characterizes the whole age, and we've had all of these. Right now, the population explosion has the world frightened, and rightly so, my beloved. They're starving to death by the thousands and millions, and that's going to increase. It has to increase. But the old black horse of famine hasn't ridden yet. He's going to ride one of these days, and it'll be at the end of the age that he'll really come forth. These are just the beginning of sorrows that we see today. I think we've come now to our first time word. I think now that we're entering the great tribulation period, and I believe that this is the thing that characterizes it. Now, let me very briefly mention to you what I have on my chart that might be helpful. You and I are living in the age of the church or the age of the Holy Spirit, as some like to speak of it. And in the world today, the Bible divides mankind into three groups. Paul says, give none offense, neither to the Jew or the Gentile or the church of God. Those are the three groups in the world. Now, he's calling out a people to his name out of both Israel and the Gentiles. And one of these days, that group will be taken out of the world. Then the great tribulation begins. And I think this is what you have here now in verse 9, the beginning actually of the great tribulation period. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Now, who's he talking about? The church? No. He's talking about the nation Israel. This is anti-Semitism on a worldwide scale. And I'd like to inject this at this point because it's important. And I trust it might be important for Christians today. My friend, as long as the church, the true church, is in the world, you could never have worldwide anti-Semitism because the church will resist that. No real believer in the Lord Jesus could hate the Jew. That's an impossibility. Now, I think liberalism has given a false front to these people and in the final analysis would finally turn against them. But long as the church is in the world, the true church, why, there'll not be worldwide anti-Semitism. But when the true church is removed, I think it'll break out worldwide. Verse 10, "...and then shall many be offended, shall betray one another, and shall hate one another." And many false prophets shall arise and deceive many. Now, we are not to pay attention to false prophets. Peter says, as there were false prophets among the people, that is Israel, there will be false teachers among you. We are to beware of false teachers. And here is a warning against false prophets, which the nation Israel was to beware of. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Now, that's a principle, of course, that you could apply that to today, as there are many principles here. A great many people today, because of the way the world is going. I met a preacher. I'd been in school with him, and he had joined everything. He'd become a liberal. He drinks his cocktails, smokes his cigarettes, and he lives just like the world. He told me, no use fighting it. He said, McGee, you don't fight City Hall, you join it. Well... I fight City Hall in that sense, by the way. I'm not about to join it. 
You see, because of the iniquity that's around him. He was telling me about in his church how much of this had gotten in his church. He's not going to fight it. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. It'll be more true in that day, of course. Now, verse 13 is supposed to be a startling verse. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now, he that shall endure unto the end. Well, now somebody says, you see, you've got to endure. Yeah, but who endures? Well, when I read the book of Revelation, I find out that he stopped the whole forces of nature and of evil and even of good. And he said, we're going to seal so many. Who is it that's going to endure to the end? Those that he sealed at the beginning, of course. And he says, my sheep, regardless of the period or regardless of the sheep, they're going to make it through to the end. He said that when he starts out with a hundred sheep, he always comes through. Now, who is it that endures to the end? Those that are his will be recognized because they'll endure to the end. I think, again, we've got a great principle there. When somebody says to me today, I knew so-and-so, he was very active in the church, he was a deacon in the church, and now he's gone into sin. Is he a child of God? I can't answer it. I don't know what to say. Because I don't know. Really, I don't know. We just have to wait. I tell them that the pigs will eventually get to the pig pen, and the prodigal sons will all get back to the father's house eventually. It is confusing to find a son in the pig pen, and sometimes you find a little pig up in the father's house. And Peter says the sow that was washed has returned to a wallowing again. The pig did get up there. One of the little pigs went up with the prodigal son, got a nice little pink ribbon around his neck, and he had his teeth washed with pepsodent. And I want to tell you, he looked very much like a real believer, but he wasn't, you see. He that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. You just have to wait. Sometimes a sheep gets in the mud. Sometimes a son gets into the pig pen. But he's going to get out, friends. Why? Because he has a wonderful shepherd. A sheep is safe because we've got a wonderful shepherd, friends. And that's what he's saying here. The same shall be saved. Now, we come to another strong statement. And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, some that do not agree with the premillennial interpretation. We have a lot of amillennialists running around today, and an amillennialist is, well, that's it, ah. That's what you think of when you hear that. They believe that, some of us believe there are two or three gospels, that there's a gospel of the kingdom and a gospel of the grace of God, and that God has several methods of saving people. I'm going to talk about that next time when we talk about this gospel of the kingdom or whether God has several methods, or whether really he has only one method, and actually these today that are trying to say that there are several Gospels, actually don't they really believe that there are at least two ways of being saved? And friends, God has never had but one way to save sinners, and that's through the death of Christ on the cross. Now, the Gospel of the kingdom, is that what John the Baptist preached? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Lord Jesus began his ministry with that message. And he sent his apostles out with that message. Now he had ceased that. 
because now his invitation has come unto me, all ye that labor and have laden, I'll rest you. Now he's talking about the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. Now, is therefore this gospel of the kingdom, which is again to be preached during the great tribulation period, it's not the message for today. We preach the gospel of the grace of God. Is this another gospel? No, my friend, it's not. Same gospel, just the emphasis is different. We have no right to say today the kingdom of heaven is at hand because we don't know. We are not given dates at all. But when the great tribulation period begins, these people will know they are close to the end, though they'll not know the day nor the hour. They will be able to say, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, it'll be because the presence of the king will be there. And again today, we do not put that emphasis. But now let me answer those who say we have two or three or four or five different ways of being saved just because we believe in dispensations. Let me put it like this. God has never had but one way of saving man. That's by the cross of Christ. Everything before he came looked to the cross of Christ. Everything since he's come looks back to the cross of Christ. How did it look forward? Well, let's go back and take Abel again. Abel brought the little lamb. And you've been there and said to Abel, Abel, why are you bringing this little lamb? You think a little lamb will take away your sins? He said, of course not. I don't believe a little lamb can take away your sins, but I'm bringing it because of the fact that he told me to. I'm bringing it by faith. Well, then, if it won't take away your sins, why would he ask it? He says, this little lamb is pointing to one that's coming down yonder, the seed of the woman, the seed of my mother. And one of these days there'll come one that will take away our sin, and I bring this little lamb by faith, recognizing I'm a sinner, I need a substitute. May I say, he's looking to the one that's coming. And John the Baptist also not only said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. So that he marked him out so that everyone that was ever saved before Christ came was saved on credit. Actually, God accepted it until Christ came, and then he took the sins of those of the past that had obeyed God and come God's way, and they were forgiven on the basis of the death of Christ. God never saved even by law back in the Old Testament. At the heart of the Mosaic system was the sacrificial system. And every person brought a little lamb. You see, the law never saved. It was given to reveal that they were lawbreakers, that they were not obeying God, and that they did need to have a substitute, that a penalty had to be paid. And today, that's the only purpose the law serves for us. The law was given that every mouth might be stopped, and the whole world become guilty before God. My friend, you're a lawbreaker. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. That's the important thing. So this gospel of the kingdom will be He's coming soon. The thing to do is to accept Him as your Savior before He comes as the sovereign of this universe, and then He'll be the judge. Now he says that when this gospel of the kingdom is preached throughout the world, the end will come. Now, that doesn't mean today that the end can't come until the gospel of the grace of God is preached while the church is here. Of course not. 
I know that there are those that use that to try to promote their program to help them get the gospel out. Well, I think it's laudable to want to get the gospel out, but this is not the verse to use for that at all. You see, friends, it's important to interpret Scripture in its context to find out what is being talked about here. Our Lord is answering the question, what is the sign of the end of the age? And now he's speaking of that. What is the sign? Here it is. Verse 15, "...when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand." Now, what is the abomination of desolation? Well, there are two of them back in the book of Daniel. We'll be studying that later, and I'll not refer back to Daniel today. But one was Titus Epiphanes, the Syrian, who came down and destroyed Jerusalem, and he profaned the altar, boiled a sow, took the broth, and poured it on all the vessels of the temple, and intruded into the holy place. And that was called then an abomination of desolation. Now, I take it that the abomination of desolation will be the image of the Antichrist that John in Revelation talks about. Now, I don't know that. That's just my surmising. I'm not looking for the abomination of desolation. In that day, that'll be the sign. That's what those that are in the world in that day will be looking for. We're not looking for the abomination of desolation. He doesn't say to Titus, looking for that abomination of desolation, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. That's what we're looking for. I do not know what an abomination of desolation really is. If I met one walking down the street, I don't think I would. I know when my daughter went away to college, that was about the time this new hairdo came in. I think they called it the bouffant. Well, it was frizzly, you know, and I remember I went up to the college and drove up to the girls' dormitory, and she came right out because she was expecting us. And I didn't know her. She had this new hairdo of the bouffant. I actually asked her if she knew where my daughter was, and she began to laugh. And I looked at that, and I said to her, I said, I've often wondered what the abomination of desolation is. Now I think I know. Well, friends, that's the closest thing I've ever seen to it, as that hairdo. But I honestly don't think that was it either. Now, he says, when you see that in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Now, those that are there will understand. I don't expect to be there, so there are many details. He just hasn't taken trouble to tell me about or tell you. Now, again, another time word, then, verse 16, when the abomination of desolation appears, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. I'm not expecting to flee into the mountains of Judea. I have no plans to do that at all. And I live here right next to the Sierra Madra Mountains, and I'm not planning to flee into them. Although I've got a neighbor that says he knows of a canyon up there. He says if the atom bombs ever dropped in Southern California, he said, that's where I'm going. 
and he's invited me to follow him, so I'll follow him if that comes to pass. But that's not to fulfill this prophecy. It hasn't anything to do with it, by the way. It has to do with people who are in Judea. He's talking to these people, my friend, not to people who live in California. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let them which be on the housetop not come down to take anything out of the house. I haven't been on the housetop in a couple of years. He would not catch me up there very often. May I say to you, over in that land, the patio, the front porch, the back porch is all up on top. That's the way they do it over there. I wish I had time to go into detail what we saw over there even today. Well, it's speaking to people that this will be applicable to. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. That is, if he left his cloak at the end of the row early of the morning when it was cool, and he's at the other end when word comes that the abomination of desolation appeared, don't go back to get your cloak. Just start running. And then, woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. He has a care and concern for those in those days. There'll be a great population explosion, the beginning of the great tribulation period. I think this earth today is becoming actually overweighted with people. We are really being crowded in today. And that, I think, is another evidence we're approaching the end of the age, by the way. I think that's more or less of a sign to us. Woe to them that are with child. His concern, he says, there's a time not to have children. Verse 20, But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Now, this is some people who are observing the Sabbath day. That's Saturday. I go to church on Sunday because my Lord came back from the dead on that day. Now, listen to him. For then shall be great tribulation. And the translation here does not really do justice to what he really said. The article is put with the adjective and with the noun when there's an emphasis in the Greek. And the literal would be, then shall be the tribulation, the great one. In other words, this is unique. Nothing like it in the history of the world. Now, he labels the end of the age, the great tribulation period. I didn't do that. He did that. Now, if you want to find fault with it, then you will have to appeal to him, not to me. I didn't think of this at all. The great tribulation, then you'll see that. You're in it then. That's the end of the age. Such as was not since the beginning of this world to this time known or ever shall be. And you see that the important thing is that there's been nothing like it before, nothing like it afterward. If that's true, then believe me, they'll know it when they get there. There are actually some people today that talk about the church going through the Great Tribulation, they don't seem to realize how severe it is. And there are others that actually think we're in it today. Well, things are bad, but you couldn't say we're in the Great Tribulation today because you can match this period with many other periods in history. When the Great Tribulation gets here, be nothing to match it with in the past or in the future. Then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the age to this time, nor ever shall be. Now listen to him. Except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. We read in the book of Revelation that during this period, at one time, a third of the population of the world is destroyed. Another occasion, a fourth of the population of the world is destroyed. 
This is something that is absolutely tremendous. The red horse of war, the black horse of famine, and then the pale horse of death, you see, will ride during that period. The earth population, that'll be decimated. There was a time when this seemed to be exaggeration, and even some good commentators made that statement. They thought it was hyperbole. Now that we know that right at this very moment that both America and Russia have enough atom bombs to destroy the population of the world, this isn't funny today. But there is comfort here. He says, except those days would be short and no flesh would survive, he will not let mankind commit suicide. That's the reason this is a brief period. Verse 23, Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. Now, what's the sign of his coming? Well, don't believe it, because there'll be false Christs. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders. Don't miss that. The ability to work miracles is a pretty dangerous thing now because the next great miracle worker that comes will not be Christ. It'll be Antichrist and his false prophet, his John the Baptist, if you please. He'll have the false prophet who will be able to perform miracles. They'll show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now, if it was possible to deceive the elect, and who are the elect? Well, somebody says, see, this is the church. Well, in the Scripture, there are two elect groups, the elect nation Israel and the elect of the church. All right? You have to use your noodle here to determine which group it is. Who are we talking about up to this point? Israel. All right? It's the elect nation. And he's not talking about the church here. I think that that has caused more difficulty and fanaticism and wild speculation than anything else. They shall deceive the very elect. But it's not possible to deceive the elect. You can fool some of the people some of the time. You can fool all of the people some of the time. But you can't fool God's children all the time. Just can't be done. I think that they'll find their way out of cults. I have before me a very wonderful letter that I've shared with you. And if I have them, I'm going to because it's here with the sheaf of letters from a party who's come out of a cult. And she listened to this program for months before she came out. You can't fool God's children all the time. They'll come out of the cult eventually. Now he says, Behold, I've told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he's in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he's in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightneth coming out of the east shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, when he comes, there'll not be any John the Baptist to announce him. When he comes, the whole world will know, and it'll be as public as lightning. Now, those of you that live in the Middle West, you know that lightning is a public affair. When it lightens, everybody knows about it. And when you have one of these electrical storms, I tell you, it's a frightful thing sometime. His coming to this earth will be 
just like that. Nobody will need to announce it. They'll know he's coming when he comes to the earth to establish his kingdom. This is not the rapture, of course. Verse 28, "...for wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together." And I would say that this is the most difficult verse in the entire discourse to understand. After speaking of him coming like the lightning out of heaven in glory, then to mention this, well, it means he's coming in judgment. In the 19th of Revelation, you find out an invitation went out to the carrion of the bird family to come together for a great big banquet, and they'd eat the flesh of kings and captains and the great men of the earth. I think that that's what he's talking about here. When he comes, he comes in judgment. And where the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Then he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, after the great tribulation, shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. I think all of this will take place that is coming to the earth. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Now, what is that sign? Now, I'll have to speculate again today. You remember back in the Old Testament that the nation Israel was given the glory, the Shekinah presence of God. No nation has ever had that. No people have ever had that. The church does not have that. There's no holy place of the church today at all. When the abomination of desolation appears in the holy place, I would not only not be able to recognize an abomination of desolation, I don't even know where the holy place is. Where is it today? No church has a holy place. Then we have here the sign. What is that? Well, the Shekinah glory of God left the nation Israel. And when he came before, he laid aside, if you please, this glory. He didn't lay aside his deity, but he laid aside his prerogatives of deity, glory. But John says we beheld that glory, though. There were times when it broke through, and he beheld that glory. Now, when he comes the second time, I think the sign will be the Shekinah glory will appear again. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is his coming to the earth to set up his kingdom. Now notice what he does. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. They shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now the elect here is the nation Israel. The prophets in the Old Testament told about they will be brought back by miracle into that land. Now that's not the church. The church is caught up out of this world to meet the Lord in the air. And the angels are not even connected with it at all. That sound of a trumpet and the voice of the archangel, it's his voice that'll be like the voice of an archangel. He'll not need anybody to help him gather the church together. He died for the church. He'll be able to bring it together. And friends, when the angels gather together, we're talking now about the nation Israel. Angels are connected with them. My, if we had time to go in even more detail than we are. Now we got down to the place here in the 32nd verse, and I'd like to turn and pick up at that point where he gives the parable of the fig tree. I'm reading now verse 32 of chapter 24. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. 
when his branch is yet tender, and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Now, I cannot see how the fig tree could be anything other than the nation Israel. I think the vine and the fig tree represent this nation. There are certainly trees and a vine that grow in abundance in that land. Even after all that's happened to that land, the thing that impressed me were fig trees up north of Jerusalem and vineyards south of Jerusalem, right south of Bethlehem. Believe me, friends, they got vineyards. Not as many as Southern California are of the San Joaquin Valley in California, but it's not as big a place. It certainly is filled with vineyards. And that is the thing that identifies the land at least. And I think he's speaking of the nation that occupies that land. Now he says, "...when the branch is yet tender, put it forth leaves, ye know that summer's nigh." So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Now, this is the warning he gives to them. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Now, this generation could refer to the race, that is, the nation Israel, or it could refer to the generation then living. One generation of what, 20 years? I think they count about that. This takes place in a much briefer time than 20 years. My feeling is it could refer to either, but I much prefer that it refers to the race, that this nation will not pass away. Haman was never able to destroy them, neither was Pharaoh, and Hitler did not succeed. And today, no dictator will be able to exterminate these people. God will see to that. Now he goes on, verse 35, to confirm it by saying, "...heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away." And he says, you can just underscore what I've said, because heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will not. And heaven and earth will pass away, and there'll be a new one. But the Word of God, he's not going to change it, friends. It's going to stand throughout the eternal ages. may add to it, but he's certainly not going to change what he's given to us. Verse 36, "...but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only." And the important thing, the day and hour, although they know they're drawing near to the period, they cannot give the day nor the hour. And I'm of the opinion, since we've had so many in our day that try to pinpoint it. They'll have them in that day that'll try to even bring it down to the hour. And they'll know something is coming, but they'll not know at the moment it will come. Now he uses here the illustration of Noah in the past. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. He'll come in a day like the days of Noah. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, the days of Noah were days of gross immorality, days when every thought and imagination of man's heart was evil, and evil continually, we're told. But when our Lord says 
as it was in the days of Noah. He just says that they were eating and drinking. Well, is there anything wrong with eating and drinking? I don't think so. I mean, we're told to whatever you do, whether it be to eat or drink, do to the glory of God. And we can do that today. Why is that evil? Well, these people were not doing it to the glory of God. In fact, they were eating and drinking as if God did not exist. It's like the little boy that was invited out for dinner, first time in his life. Of course, it was just next door, but to him it was a highlight. And his mother practically had to chain him all that day to keep him from making a beeline to go over the fence to go next door. And finally, why, the time came and she got him ready and washed his face, and he made a beeline to get next door. It was a new experience for him. He'd never been away from home on his own. And when they sat down at the table to eat, why, he had come out of a Christian home, and this was a non-Christian home, and so he just automatically, little fella, bowed his head. And all of a sudden, he discovered nothing was happening as far as returning thanks was concerned, but they sure were passing the food. And he didn't want to miss it, and he just opened his eyes and looked. And not having any inhibitions, he said, "'Don't you folk here thank God for your food?' It was embarrassing for a moment. But the lady of the house said, "'No,' said, "'We don't.'" little fellow thought a moment, and he said, "'You're just like my dog,' says, "'You just start in.'" A lot of people today just start in, don't they? There are multitudes of people today sat down at their meal and will sit down three times a day, receive a meal that comes from the hand of God. And this year, we're told, two and a half millions of people are going to starve to death in this world. But you and I have plenty today, and we have plenty, and the godless have plenty. Because God's not judging them today. They have plenty, and they're not thanking God. In the days of Noah, they'll be eating and drinking. Here they are right on the verge of the coming of Christ. They're living as if it's never going to take place. And there are people living like that today. And then he says they're marrying and giving in marriage. That is all right, isn't it, to be married? Well, they were acting as if God did not exist. Oh, I guess they had a church wedding, but it was very meaningless. It didn't mean a thing to them. And they did it right up to the day that Noah entered into the ark. They lived as if God did not exist. They did not believe that he was coming to this earth again. They were scorners. They ridiculed the fact that he's coming. They knew not until the flood came, took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. Now, somebody said to me, well, preacher, you finally painted yourself into a corner. You said the church and the rapture's not in the Olivet Discourse, and look, here it is. There'll be two in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Women grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. I have news for you. He's still not talking about the rapture. This is not the rapture. What makes you think it's the rapture? Well, it's one taken the other left, isn't that rapture? Oh, no, my friend, not at all. After all, what's he talking about? As it was in the days of Noah. Well, how was it in the days of Noah? Who was taken away and who was left? They knew not until the flood came and took them all away. What? 
those that perish. This is no rapture of taking the church out of the world. This is removing from the earth by judgment those that are not going to enter the kingdom. One will be taken away, the other left. Left for what? To enter into the millennial kingdom. That's the picture that we have here. It's not the rapture at all. Really, I didn't paint myself into a corner after all. Now, will you notice verse 42? Watch therefore. Now, that is the important word. Watch therefore. And that, I think, is a little different than the watching that the child of God is to do today, looking for the Lord to come. Today, it's a comforting hope. There's a note of fear, anxiety in that day. They'll say, would God it were night when it's morning. And they'll, would God it were morning when it's night. So that there's anxiety in that day, but today we're to wait for the Lord from heaven. Now, somebody's going to say, but you're splitting hairs, aren't you? Oh, no, I'm not. The word watch in the Old Testament, and I've looked it up in Hebrew, and it has about 17 different meanings. And we have only one word, but actually watching today has different meanings altogether. Let me illustrate. Now, here's a man that's going to go deer hunting. And he goes with his gang at the usual time of the year, and he goes up to that same spot, and they camp out at night, get up the next morning, and he goes up and right over the hog back on the hill at the trunk of an old tree that's down there, why he takes his usual place, because the deer come across there, and he sits and waits. After a while, he hears a noise in a bush. He thinks it may be a deer, and he lifts his rifle and he waits. And believe me, it better not even be a deer hunter, because he's apt to shoot him. But he's watching, you see, for a deer. Now, about two weeks later, you meet this same man down on the street at the main street corner in your town. And you see him there. He's looking down this street, looking down that street. And you know he's waiting for somebody. And he sure is watching. You go up to him and you say, well, who are you looking for? Oh, he says, my wife. She's 45 minutes late. You see, he's watching for a deer again, but it's different deer. But he's watching in a little different way. Before he had his deer gun. Now he sort of wishes he had it with him again. She's 45 minutes late. But it's against the law for him to shoot her in no open season. So... He doesn't have his deer gun. He's watching in a different way, you see. Now, that's two different ways. Let me mention another. Suppose a month or two after that, you go to the hospital, and you pass a room, and you see him and his wife sitting there by a bedside of a little child, and the little child has a burning fever, and the doctor says the crisis will come about midnight. And they'll watch him. My friend, that's a different type of watching than watching for a deer or waiting for his wife on a corner that's with anxiety. I think it's something like that. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye know not, the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season. Now, what he's doing in the rest of the Olivet Discourse are giving parables to illustrate the attitude of folk to his coming and what will happen when he does come. Now, I'm going to drop down to chapter 25 because we must finish this chapter today in the Olivet Discourse, and I'll just have to hit high points here, as you can see. But 
the attitude of some will be that, well, my Lord delays his coming. So he just goes on living carelessly. Well, God's going to judge him when he comes. In other words, in that day, and this is a great principle, we ought to live our life in the light of the fact we're to stand in the presence of Christ. And did you notice I didn't say in light of the coming of Christ? Now, I don't care whether he's coming as a hundred years from today or a thousand years. You and I are to stand in his presence. And whether you're saved or lost, you're going to stand in his presence. If you're saved, you will have to give an account of your life to see whether you receive a reward. And if you're lost, you'll stand there to be judged. So every person should live his life in light of the fact He's to stand in the presence of the Lord. Now, that's the big emphasis here in the Olivet Discourse. Therefore, it has an application to us. But the interpretation, I trust we've made clear, is not for us.